This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 29th of August 2017, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anybody working with or investigating big data. My name is Jon, and here is my excellent co-host Dave. Hello, Jon. Hello, Dave. Are you as unhappy as I am today? Uh, because our vacations are coming to an end. Yes, sadly. All good but, things come to an end. there's a silver lining. That there means is. we're back to a live podcast. Woohoo! Yes, well, that's next time. This one is still a pre-recorded one, so again, no news today. But uh, this should be the last pre-recorded one, and so from next uh, episode onwards, you will actually find out if Dave and I really survived the holidays or not. Yeah, that's true. And if you don't hear from us again, <laughs> you um, know what I happened. guess it all went horribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> or it went fantastically right and we never came back. Yeah, maybe. maybe. It's possible too. Now, we did have a little plan for our holidays, uh, including Big Data. So we'll see if that works out and you'll find out with the next episode. But what do we have for our listeners this episode, Dave? We have the finale um, of our series of sections of interview with Alan Gates. Yes. Um, it's it's a, a veritable grab bag and cornucopia of uh, different topics. So we talk about uh, the ODPI a little bit, a bit about Cloudfirst, Flink, uh, Pig, and a little bit of philosophy. Yes, that was also a very surprising ending for the uh, interview for me. But uh, Alan Gates, he can talk about just about anything, I think. Indeed, indeed. Uh, great, uh, great session. Uh, let's get to it. Yeah, let's not keep anybody waiting. We'll be back with the interview after the music. Um, the other thing that uh, you mentioned earlier, and uh, I, I did know it, but for some reason it, it didn't trigger immediately, is that uh, you're also involved in the ODPI. Uh-huh. So um, we we actually interviewed uh, John Murtick back in episode 21. Uh, so if you're if you're thinking ODP what, uh, please go back and listen to uh, episode 21 of the Roaring Elephant podcast, and you can hear John Murtick from uh, the Linux Foundation ODPI talking about ODPI, what it means, and uh, why you should care. But um, how you know? I guess you know. One of the questions is, uh, you know, what what's what do you do with the ODPI? What's your engagement with the ODPI? Um, so I have a couple things. My main role there is I am the chair of the TSC, which is the Technical Steering Committee. So we're the group that actually implements, uh, you know, does the work ODPI says it um, is going to do from a technical perspective. As being part of the mm-hmm. chair, that means I also sit on the board. So um, I am actually part of the board and help kind of oversee the whole thing. Um, really, I got involved from the to, as HortonWorks representative on it because I was an old guy. Basically, <laughs> I've been around a long time. I knew, you know, I knew what was going on, um, and kind of had a lot of the history of where is Hadoop and because ODPI, a lot of the genesis was how are we going to take all these diverse distributions, make sure customers know how to process this, can work with things, how can we help bring some uniformity for our users in how they test and use the system. And so someone like me had been around a long time and had 
knew a lot about the ecosystem was an obviously a good fit. And that's kind of continued to be my role is help ODPI, you know, because we started out with just Hadoop and Ambari. Then recently we added Hive, which obviously is a natural fit for me. Um, so I developed a lot of the tests around how do we certify that a distribution is shipping the right version of Hive and it supports all the features that it should and and all that kind of stuff. Great, great. I mean, I think you've alluded to it somewhat in in your in your response, but you know, how important do you think the ODPI is to the to the big data industry to the Hadoop ecosystem? Well, I think what's important right now is like I talk to, or at least what I see as the biggest value add is I talk to some of our partners, um, you know, people who build software that's going to run on top of Hadoop, and they tell me it's just a test nightmare for them. They have to test. You know, they have some customers running Hortonworks. They have some running Cloudera, some running MapR, some pulling stuff directly from Apache and trying to run it. And so they have to test their software against all those options. And that is, you know, of course, just makes things a mess for them. So our main goal is how do we minimize, you know, how do we shrink that test matrix for them? Now, you know, at the moment, um, we have Hortonworks, uh, Pivotal, IBM, some other Hadoop distributors in there. So um, we're not everybody's on board, which hopefully someday they will be. But we can at least bring some specifications to the table and say, this is what Hadoop should look like. And we can help, we can build tools, and we are building tools to help the users understand when things aren't the way we've specified and what the workarounds are for that, right? Like, let's say that some distribution moves a library around and puts it in a different directory. We can at least catch that and tell them, hey, this library that you're going to need is in this different spot, so your code should be able to handle that case, Um, right? Because that's really what we want to do is just make life easier for those adopters. And, you know, from a distributor viewpoint, this is an obvious thing we want because the more people that build software on Hadoop, the bigger the ecosystem, the bigger the win for us. Yeah, yeah. And the the piece about ODPI that's been, um, you know, a, you can draw a very clear line from and to has always been the, um, you know, for third-party ISVs producing tools or tech around that integrate with this, it, it's, a, it's a clear win for them because certify against an ODP compliant distribution and the answer should be if you've certified against one then you've certified against them all effectively the 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 sort of conversation that's a little bit more nuanced should we say is perhaps the the experience for for the end user you know why should the end user care whether or not they're using a an ODPI compliant distribution, and I some some of the the benefits I believe are uh, tacit. I guess you know the 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 sort of the larger community behind a single kind of set of standards and all those kind of um, you know good you know fluffy sort of benefits, if you like. But the the perhaps the the, the hard and fast benefits for a, an end consumer are perhaps a little bit more opaque. I mean, do do you agree? Do you see that, or do you think there's there's actually some very clear distinctions that can be drawn? I I don't think there's there is yet. I I think in time 
if ODPI is successful mm-hmm. and we make life easier for the application writers to the point that a significant percentage of them are, you know, s- certify that their stuff runs on ODPI, then, then that's when it will come out for the end user, right? Because they'll say, oh, well, I know if I get an ODPI compliant distribution, look at all the apps that will work in this, right? It's like the, yep. buying an iPhone. You know that um, everything in the app store should work on your phone. We're not there yet. So I don't think that value is there yet for the end user, but that would be the the end game for us. Yeah, yeah. Um, although I, I hate the walled garden <laughs> attitude of my phone and iOS. So, but yeah, yeah, no, I, I completely get it. We don't want to create any it. walled gardens, um, don't get me wrong. I wasn't going for that part of the analogy. No, no, I know, I know, I know. So um, the, the other thing with... Um, with ODPI that I think is particularly interesting is how they've actually been involved in, in actually contributing things like tests back into the upstream projects, which, um, you know, it's not just that they've been doing stuff sort of downstream ODPI, but they've actually been, you know, working with upstream projects to actually push some of that stuff, you know, further up, which, you know, that's just, that's got to be good for everybody. Yeah, and we're, we've actually become even more focused on that. We recently switched to using BigTop completely. I mean, we had been using BigTop for our test harness, but we hadn't been. We'd only contributed some of the tests back. We we actually, I believe, now have contributed them all back, and we're working on um, using BigTop as our reference implementation, so that you will. Mm-hmm. So when you get a BigTop distribution, it will actually be ODPI compliant, assuming it has. You know, Big Top contains a lot of projects we don't specify for, so that obviously wouldn't be covered. But for the ones that we do specify, um, so that yeah, everybody can benefit from that, whether they're a part of ODPI or not. Yeah, I mean, one of the the, the nice pieces about ODPI is it, it started off with a you know a reasonably you know nice set of 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 logos slash organizations sort of behind it. But if if you look at sort of the the breadth of organizations involved today, it really, at least you know from from a, a logo perspective, it really seems to have kind of taken off. You know, you've got you know, big names like IBM, you know, put, putting their weight behind it now. Do you think it's fair to say that uh, that sort of it's reached that that critical mass of momentum, or do you think there's there's still a little bit more evolution to come here? I think we've grown nicely given our where we're at, but I would definitely like to see us keep growing. Um, you know, I, I think there's, um, and not that it's about capturing logos, but it's about making sure we cover all the use cases, right? Um, so the more people we can get involved, um, the, the more we know that we're covering the use cases those people care about. Cause I can't sit and think about what's important to someone who does something completely different than I do. So it's, um, I, I would definitely like to see us keep growing. I, I don't feel like we've, uh, finished that, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm happy with where we've gotten to today. Excellent. Um, so I, I think the, the sort of final thing on, on ODPI really is, um, the 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 way that things have have evolved you know we started off with as you mentioned kind of core um you know core hdfs and 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 hadoop and yarn and MapReduce. 
um, you know, Hive's come in there now, and Bari's come in there now. What what do you think are the next kind of kind of targets to line up in terms of projects to start uh, including? So people are talking about different a couple different options. One thing there's been a working group on talking about uh, specifying what do we do for security because when we talk to our members over and over again, they're like, we need to know, we need to understand what are the best practices around security. How should and this is actually a place that will also benefit the end users is how do I secure that? Okay, fine. I've got a Hadoop system. What do I need to do to secure it? Um, so there's, there's quite a bit of energy going into the security side and whether that comes out as here's a project that we're going to specify, that's more likely to come out as a set of best practices along with options for, you know, if you choose Ranger, do it like this. Um, if you choose something else, maybe here's some other advice. That's one piece. There's interest in Spark and HBase. I don't know how soon those will come in, but there's a lot of interest. And then there's also interest in NAD and Kafka, since it's obviously a very important technology. And like Hadoop, it, it forms kind of a basis for a lot of other processing. Uh, no mention of NiFi yet. Um. <laughs> Because we're both no has, fanboys for NiFi. Well, I I like <laughs> NiFi obviously quite a bit myself, but um, no one has talked about bringing NiFi in yet. That's yeah. true. Still a bit of a side, uh, even at Hortonworks, you have the different uh, the data flow versus the data platform, of course. Anything else on ODPI you want to share with us? Nope, I think we've covered it. You covered it. <laughs> okay, then a quick sidestep, perhaps. In your talk, you also gave some uh, cloud tips and tricks. You're talking about the block storages and uh, what that entails. And there's been, of course, the case where ACP 2.6 was available on AC Inside before anywhere else. So this cloud-first strategy that apparently Hortonworks is uh, uh, handling, and well, what's your view on that? Um. Well, I think you know the cloud is obviously important um, to a lot of people, and every few years it seems like people wake up and say, "Oh, the cloud's going to take over. Everything's moving to the cloud," mm -hmm. and then the, kind of you know the hype cycle goes down, and not everything has moved to the cloud. We're kind of back in the upswing of everything's going to move to the cloud. I think the cloud's very important. I think a lot of data is going to be done on there. I think there's going to be a lot of data still on premise and there's going to be a not a big need to exchange data back and forth between the two. Right. Um, and so we're saying cloud first because it, it's an easy place. It's a good way for us to deploy quickly, get things out there. It's a way that people can interact with our um, releases without having to do full upgrades and stuff. Cause when we release, you know, a, a full HDP stack, it takes a long time for people to consume that to upgrade their clusters mm -hmm. and, and really get to work on it. When we put out something in our HDC, the, our cloud stuff on AWS or HD insight on Azure, people can pick that up right away, spin up a new cluster, very little investment for, on their side to try out the new, new features. So we see that as, as really key. Um, but we also see as key building the tools to enable people to to work across the systems and and move the data around as they need to. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. We also, I mean, I work in the cloud environment, of course, and uh, we kind of see two types of customers emerging. You have the really big customers like financial institutions that still have their own data centers, multiple data centers, even that they can keep it on premise. But a lot of the uh, small, medium enterprises, let's say, they really want to give up their data centers. And for them, this cloud yes. first strategy is very important, of course. Yes. And we have customers on both sides. We have customers coming and telling us, you know what, we're only going to the cloud. We have people um, coming and saying, we're going to pursue both. And people saying, no, we're, we don't think we'll ever go to the cloud. We can't envision how we could secure our data there. Hmm. Um, I think that for us drives us toward, okay, there's, you know, Hadoop works in the cloud. It's always worked in the cloud, hmm. but there's some ways it's not optimal yet in the cloud. It, you know, it makes some assumptions about the underlying storage system that the object stores don't always uh, meet. And it, um, you, you want to be able to run Hadoop in a way that doesn't require a standing cluster always in the past. You know, Hadoop was always on, it was just there. That's fine on premise. That's not a good answer in the cloud because mm -hmm. you don't want, nobody wants to be paying for a hundred machines sitting there doing nothing. Um, and, or a hundred VMs, I guess. But so there's some adaptive work there to do to make it better with that ephemeral spin up, spin down, but still have your metadata and uh, security governance, all that in place all the time. And that's a lot of what you'll see us over the coming year working on in our um, HDI and HDC offerings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, another thing that's going to be important here, I think, is the uh, Yarn 3.0 uh, uh, new things there with the containers uh, set up. You can, I think the example yes. is given to put TensorFlow in there. So if you have a cluster in the cloud today that's not being used 100% all day, every day, by being able to put more workload on it, maybe that becomes a non-issue. Yes, that's true. And it even uh, enables more, not that Hadoop's going to move into the private cloud space because it's not, I, I don't want to say that, but it enables you to even use your on-premise Hadoop more in that way to run a more diverse set of workloads mm -hmm. um, in, like I said, the nodes you've already invested in. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. in the past I've, I've had customers that insisted on putting Mesos as a scheduling on their Hadoop cluster because it could do more which was good for the other stuff they wanted to do, but not as good to get all the Hadoop stuff working as you would expect it to be. Right. With Yarn having this now, that should kind of settle the argument, right? If uh, Hadoop is your main thing, then go for the Yarn uh, scheduler. If Hadoop is or the Hive thing or the Spark is something to on the side, then maybe go for another scheduler. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what we want to be able to do. If, if you need to run Hadoop on these machines, and but you need to run some other stuff, we want to enable that. Again, having a yarn inception, that was just great. <laughs> I, I think the, the, the whole piece around um, bringing, I mean, Hadoop has always been a, about sort of co-locating your, your data with your storage, uh, so your, your processing with your storage. And, you know, with the ability to, you know, have containerized apps running on Hadoop, you're essentially you're you're taking that that processing to the the next level to be able to you know any sort of uh, containerized application that needs data potentially could be uh, you know hooked up and and run that way it just it makes it makes for a nice kind of next generation part of that story yeah and you're right that's exactly our vision is we want to enable 
bring whatever you're doing, bring it to your data here um, rather than having to move your data around. Because every time that I talk to someone and they draw a picture and they say, and then the data moves from here to there, I'm like, then I get scared. Um, cause <laughs> that just takes time and processing. And, and I mean, I did allude earlier to people are going to want to move data between on-prem and the cloud and, mm-hmm. and that, or between two different on-prem places. And you're certainly going to want to do that for backup reasons for, um, you know, disaster recovery, all those sorts of things. Those aren't going to go away, of course. But the more that yep. you can bring processing to the data, because when you're talking about terabytes or petabytes, it just you can't lay enough fiber or have a big enough network to move that efficiently. Well, Elon Musk is going to put the satellites in the air, right? That's going to solve everything. Um, well, maybe, but <laughs> I, I actually am hoping that he builds his uh, little tubes for transport first, because <laughs> I'd really like to be able to get around faster. But. <laughs> Uh, a fan of Hyperloop. Well, if they could build it here in California, if I didn't have to drive from here to L.A. when I need to go to L.A., I would be very happy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, another another topic that, I mean, it, it's something you mentioned briefly earlier on, um, is, is Flink. Mm. And uh, I think it's it's reasonably well known that that you're a bit of a fan of of Flink. How do you how how do you feel about where where Flink is today and and how it's evolving and you know do you do you think it's it's found its place in the in the world or do you think it's it's still kind of uh, a little bit niche and, and still trying to to get there? Um, well, I don't know if I found its place, you mean it knows what it's good at. Yes, I think it has. I mean, I I think it Mm -hmm. really is good in that streaming use case where you, you know, you want to be able to um, respond to events very quickly in an an event, you know, with that um, exactly one semantics that they can offer. Um, If you mean everybody who could use it has discovered it yet. No, I don't think so. I I think there's still, um, an an expandable market for it as people realize all the all that it can achieve and um basically what they could accomplish if they use this technology so in that sense i feel like it's it still has a place to grow yeah and you know in in terms of other projects that you've been uh, involved in along the way you know what, what's what's happening with pig today is is there is any sort of uh you know is it is it you know, stable and reliable, and and uh, that's pretty much it is where it is. Or is is there still ongoing uh, development effort uh, going into that? There is some development. Most mostly, it is stable. People use it. People like it. Um, you know, we did a survey recently of how many of our customers were using it, and found that quite a few are still using it regularly, and mm-hmm. you know, are happy with it. So. Um, a lot of the development now is just keeping it current with other changes in the system so that it um, continues to integrate well with things and um, work. There's not tons of great new features going in, but it, you know, it does what people need it to do. Yeah. Yeah. Have you, have you seen the, uh, the recent uh, blog post around Spork um, Apache pig on Apache spark? Um, I didn't see the blog post. I know there's been um, work on that off and on because they did, you know, shortly after we reworked Hive to run on Tez, 
uh, Yahoo did, and I think we helped them with it, did some of the same work on Pig to move it to Tez. And um, yep. some other people also made it Pig work on Spark as well. Um, I haven't kept up that much with that work other than I knew it was going on. Yep. It's just people that are using Spig really love Spig. That they love the way the the language is built, and they want to put yes. it everywhere. Apparently, and it's not uh, immune to this Spark allure either. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> I I just have to say that I think Spork is one of the greatest. I mean, yeah, I I just think that they've nailed in terms of naming conventions. If 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 projects were purely rated in naming conventions, you know, S Pork Spork, brilliant. The, the multi-tool of cutlery. Yeah, the you know, one of my favorite, uh, this is kind of funny, but one of the like, just favorite things about Pig was the amount of fun you could have with the name. And it was totally random. I asked, because um, I wasn't on the project when it was named, and I asked them one day, I'm like, why in the world did you name this Pig? And they're like, oh, we just said one day we need a name, and somebody said Pig, and it stuck. <laughs> but it, you know, with the being able to call the language Pig Latin and mm-hmm. the the shell grunt and for, uh, you know, um, it just works, right? We had a development environment called pig pen. It was (laughs) just so much fun for the naming possibilities. The the one that I heard is uh, it was called pig because it it pretty much eats anything. Well, we did. We kind of came up with that because we, we sat down when we got, when we took it to Apache and we actually had um, people weren't sure what we were trying to do. And we, put up a page. Um, actually, I think I wrote the page called pig, a Ph- pig philosophy. And it, <laughs> it, it, one of the, we said pigs eat anything. Um, pigs, um, pigs do what they're told. Um, oh God, there's a third one I'm forgetting. And then the fourth one was pigs fly because we wanted <laughs> it to be fast. Um, and my wife tells me that pigs actually don't eat anything because, uh, she grew up on a farm and actually, helped raise some pigs, but she said it's, they don't quite earn that rep, you know, they have that reputation, but it's not a hundred percent true. But, um, you know, we just wanted to explain to people what we were doing and it was, we actually found it was really helpful to people to put that out there and just let them know what is this project and what's it trying to do, um, you know, as a way to get started when you're a new project. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, very good. Very good. Um, so just you know as as we as we wrap this up um and uh Jan was was doing a little bit of research and uh discovered uh, that you know you've got a so you've got a a BS in mathematics and also a, an MA in theology I understand. Yes, that's true. Uh people tell me I'm schizophrenic. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so I was going to say how does the MA in theology sort of help you out on a on a on a day-to-day basis with with the glorious world of, of big data. <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny. I, I actually got that while I was at Yahoo um, before we started the Hadoop. Yeah. Well, I was still, you know, I was still finishing it up when I was in the Hadoop team, but um, the uh, oddly enough, the, I mean, the most direct, I suppose, connection is in studying theology, you also read a fair amount of philosophy. And mm-hmm. when you start reading philosophy, you find out it's not all that different from computer science. You start reading some of Plato and you're like, hey, this kind of looks like C++. He's talking about <laughs> objects and classes. <laughs> um, so, it, but actually, it does teach you to think, reading philosophy, reading theology, you, you learn to think about things from different perspectives. And that's helped me a ton 
in thinking about in in the open source world, working with other people, figuring out what perspective they're coming from, even just working with different tools and realizing that they're coming at the problem with a different perspective and that I can't just think from my perspective. We talked before about how um, you know people look at Hive, see SQL, and think, oh, data warehouse, but it's not quite the same thing. It's not Teradata. It is something different. <laughs> and you have to learn to think differently about it. You have to learn that system and think about it. And I, I know that's a funny connection, but I have really you know, reading a lot of theology and philosophy helped me see that and helped me apply it here. Yeah, completely. I can, I can definitely see that. I can definitely see that. So, I mean, as we, as we reach the, uh, the, the, the top of the hour, perhaps, you know, one, one final question, um, would be, uh, what words of wisdom would you give for for people that are sort of new to new to Hadoop, new to big data, and are you know maybe trying to get their heads around it, or um, you know looking at all the the animals in the zoo, as the phrase goes, and and kind of uh, just shaking their head with what on earth they're, they're going to make of all this? I'll answer that on two two different ways, depending on who who it is coming to the system. Let's say it's a user, a grad student who mm-hmm. wants to play with the technologies. I would say just find one that interests you, find a bug or a small feature that needs added or fixed in that system and start tinkering with it. Because it's pretty easy, actually. Most of these are small enough. You can download the code, get started. You can find some simple bug and just kind of throw yourself in and There'll be some, you know, there'll be some splashing around and you might sink here and there, but there, the community will help you and there's no substitute for just getting started on it. Now, if you're a user, you're coming this not as, oh, I want to help develop it, but I just want to use this, but I don't even know what I can use it for. We tell people over and over again, the key thing is identify one use case that you think this is applicable for and try that first. Don't just throw this in here as the wonder tool that's going to solve all your problems. Don't bite off too much at once. Find one thing, prove that it will or maybe won't work for that one thing that you, there's value in that, and then start to move other things onto it. Because if you try to use it to solve everything at once, it just, you get overwhelmed. Yeah, couldn't, couldn't agree more. I certainly when it comes to developers, you know, Jira is a surprisingly huge playpen of opportunities to uh, to look at uh, exercising your development skills, right? Yeah, it is. And you you can find some bug that somebody filed and was, you know, for whatever reason never got around to fixing even if it's just 10 lines of code you you need to write. It's such a great introduction to the system and to how the community works and reviewing your patch and working with you to get in and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, couldn't agree more when it comes to the the user's side of things, you know, brand new users, brand new organizations looking to this, you know, focus focus on that first use case. Try not to get distracted by all the animals in the right. zoo. You'll probably only need, you know, three or four of them to get started. And you won't necessarily need to know them all in, in intricate detail. But it's you know knowing enough so that you can solve that initial problem that gives you the impetus to you know understand where it fits in the overall picture and and move on from there. Right. Yeah. Exactly. 
All right. So with that, I think we have pretty much uh, run out of time. So I'd like to first of all thank thank you, Alan, for uh, giving up some uh, some time to the to the podcast, and I'm sure our listeners will uh, will appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Yeah, fantastic. And yeah, I think uh, we've all got uh, we've all got a lot to, a lot to learn and a lot that we can uh, we can enjoy from this. But uh, I think uh, if you're up for it, we'll we'll definitely have you back at at some time in the future. All right, that sounds good. Yeah, thank you very much for being on the podcast because you know so much about so many things. It's been amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> All right. And uh, with that, thanks very much, Alan. Much appreciated. And uh, look forward to uh, catching up again All with right. you soon. Goodbye. Talk to you later. Take care. And there you go. Our final section of our interview with Alan Gates. I hope you've all enjoyed listening to that uh, as much as we enjoyed recording it. Really yeah. good session. Now, uh, I'm really sad it. now. This is the last piece of Alan Gates we had for you. Well, on the bright side, we can always record more. I do hope so. We had a great time with Alan. So uh, if he's up for it, and I'm pretty much sure he is, uh, let's have him back on, please. I think so. I think so. Yeah. So very much uh, like to thank Alan for his, for his time. The fact that uh, he managed to provide enough material for four different (laughs) certainly says uh, something about the quality of the conversation we have. And as I say, I hope you all enjoyed it as much as uh, we enjoyed making it and listening to it and having that set of conversations. So with that, I think that's about all the time we have for today. Hope you enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data. We'll be back in two weeks' time with a brand new episode, but until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find out more information about the podcast, take a look at the feedback form and give us some feedback, any thoughts, comments, criticisms. Um, Also, follow us on Twitter using the at Hadoopcast tag and also contact us by email podcast at roaringelephant.org. Until the next time, my name is Dave. And my name is John. And we look forward to talking to you in two weeks' time. See you then.